God and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and we'll be reading verses 1 through 9 this morning. 1 Corinthians 7, beginning with verse 1, here is the infallible, inspired, inerrant word of God. Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise also the husband does not have authority of his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time. So that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But this I say by way of concession, not of command, yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I. But if they do not have self-control... Let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Let's ask God to help us understand. Father in heaven, we come to you humbly, claiming the title of servants. And we uh, thank you that you have made us as such through Jesus Christ. And because that is what we are, we need to know your testimonies, so that we will know how to esteem your word as if it were greater than gold, and that we would know how to honor your precepts, and that we would learn how to forsake and hate everything else that is contrary to the divine standards which you have revealed in your word. So give us this grace and help us to understand these holy words this morning to the power of your Spirit, that we may know how to live and walk before you in all honor. This we ask through Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I think it's fair to be warned this morning as we come back to uh, 1 Corinthians and we continue on in our exposition of this book. I think it's fair to be warned this morning that if this uh, particular chapter, and you could even uh, stretch that back into chapter 6, went before a ratings review board this morning, uh, it would not receive this material as G-rated. Uh, and that's important for us to, to think about and be prepared for. Uh, actually, the Apostle Paul speaks quite frankly here about sexual matters uh, pertaining to marriage and to the single life. And it's important that uh, in a culture such as ours that has a great deal of difficulty, and by the way, it's not just our culture, it's basically uh, every culture throughout history, wherever you find men and women together, you'll always find the struggles, the temptations, and the sins that the Apostle Paul speaks of here. So uh, we just have to be warned, we have to uh, maybe thicken our skin a little bit this morning, and be prepared to receive what God has revealed here in His Word. And what Paul particularly addresses now is not the topic of sexual immorality in general, he addresses it within the context of marriage. And just to give you a sense of where we're going as we begin to work our way through 1 Corinthians 7, what I'm going to argue is that the first half of this chapter, going all the way to verse 24, basically represents Paul's general commands. A general commands to all people in all places about marriage and single life and so on. And then from verse 25 to the end of the chapter, I'm going to argue, not today, but at a later point, the Lord willing, that Paul has some very specific things to say to the Corinthians in their specific place and location. And although it's specific to that culture and to that situation, there will be a number of principles that will emerge from the passage that are still useful to God's people now. With that framework in mind, we come back to uh, the very first part of the chapter and to the first verse. And there's two important questions that we have to answer this morning as we try to get a handle on this revelation of the Apostle Paul to the Corinthians and to the church. And you'll see that first question that we need to answer in verse 1 when he says, 
uh, concerning the things which you wrote about, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. So question number one this morning that we need to answer is, is this statement, it's good for a man not to touch a woman, is that Paul's statement... Or is that a statement that has been made by the Corinthians themselves and Paul is addressing? Now, I want us to know why that's an important question to ask and to answer. Because when the Apostle Paul says it's good for a man not to touch, he's using a euphemism. He's sort of in the G-rated language at this point. It obviously refers to sexual matters. And what the Corinthians seem to be saying is this for Paul, that it is good for a man not to engage in sexual relations with a woman at all, even married people. So that's the question that we have to begin to deal with here. And so, obviously, I think you can see from that that it's important that we understand whether this is a quotation from the Corinthians or whether this is a statement made by the Apostle Paul. There are many people who look at this particular issue and they say this is a quotation that the Corinthians have offered. And what Paul has done here is he has simply repeated it without uh, indicating his agreement of it uh, in verse 1. And it seems, some have argued, that within the Corinthian church, due to whatever reasons, and we can't uh, be sure about them definitively, so it's best for us not to speculate too much on the issue, but it does seem that there is at least a pocket within the Corinthian church who are ascetic, who are arguing uh, that because the body is impure and really nothing, that the best thing for Christians to do, and that's even marriage Christians, is to lead a celibate life. In other words, a higher plane of spirituality. God's best for you, in other words. The best way to act if you are a Christian is to not engage in any kind of sexual relations at all. Now, some would argue that's what's being said in the church. It would only be a pocket of the church, obviously, because uh, 1 Corinthians 6, the latter half of that chapter, wouldn't make any sense if the entire church had that mindset. Because you know there that the Apostle Paul rebuked sexual immorality in the church. But this is not pertaining to sexual immorality as much as just the very concept of relations. Now, the other opinion on this particular question would be that the Apostle Paul made the statement. The other issue would be that this is Paul's own statement, or at least Paul is in 100% agreement with the statement. In other words, there are many who are arguing that the Apostle Paul idealized the celibate life. That he really did not believe that marriage was God's best for you, that it was only uh, allowed by way of concession, and that it was not commendable, and it was really God's second best for you. Now, I only sweep these issues out because you have to make uh, a decision about them, first of all. And I would warn you that there are many conservative Protestant scholars who have written things that are in commentaries and books that you can find on bookshelves. And there are many contemporary, nationally syndicated conservative Protestant and even Reformed preachers who take the position that the Apostle Paul is saying here that he agrees with the statement. It is really best for you. It's better to lead the celibate life. And what I would say right now, if that is exactly what the Apostle Paul is saying, then we ought to teach all of our children that celibacy is God's best. If they really want a higher plane of spirituality, if they really want to be in tune with God's will, if they really want the best for them spiritually, then they need to be taught right now that celibacy is better than marriage. We would need to, at this point, completely reshape our thinking and allow this passage to govern our concept of marriage if the Apostle Paul is really arguing that. Now, I'm a little bit animated and worked up about it because I've literally heard pastors uh, speak about this passage and I, I would say, in a happy inconsistency, and sort of casually agree, yeah, yeah Paul is probably offering this point of view here. And uh, just sort of casually uh, drop the suggestion that maybe if we really thought about this passage in any length at all, that it would really challenge us a great deal. 
Well, people of God, I must remind you the foundational principle of being a Protestant and being Reformed is Scripture alone. And if the Bible teaches a particular position, a practice, or a doctrine, then we're obligated and duty-bound to follow and conform our life to it. So, if we are to be faithful, biblical, reformed, and Protestant, we would have to say this morning that if Paul was really teaching that, then we must have a massive reshaping of our understanding of marriage. And we must be very careful to begin an education effort to change the views of those who are not yet married. So those are the issues before us. I feel like it's fair for me to just to spell them out. And I'm going to be very uh, biased this morning and tell you I just absolutely disagree with Paul, uh, the statement that this is Paul's uh, own view on marriage. And I'm going to give you several reasons for why I completely disagree with that point of view. I hope you don't hold that point of view this morning. If you do, you'll probably walk away having it changed, I hope. Uh, look at your Bibles, first of all. Context is king. Whenever you interpret the Scripture, context is king. And the very important contextual clue that helps us begin to understand what's in view here is those first two words, or rather three, four. There are two in the original. It says, now concerning the things. Now, keep your finger on that and look down at, let's say, verse 25 in this chapter. You'll see those same words there. Now concerning. Keep your finger there and turn over to 1 Corinthians 8.1. And what you will see there is the same words again. Now concerning things. If you flip over to chapter 12, verse 1, you'll see now concerning Flip over to 1 Corinthians 16.1. What will you find there? You'll find the same phrase, now concerning. And then verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 16, now concerning. Now I've walked you through all five uses of this particular phrase in the book of Corinthians. And the best, uh, to me, approach to uh, that repetition of this particular construction in the original, uh, many scholars hold this to be true, that what Paul is doing now is he's responding to a whole series of questions that they have given to him. Uh, There was a delegation that went and visited him, and they talked about problems in the church, and now the Apostle Paul is responding to those, and so he says, now concerning the things which you wrote about. And, And here's what Paul is saying. He is now quoting, you wrote to me about this, and what you said was, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. Now, Paul is quoting then, or at least he is stating the matter in such a way that it would be consistent with and recognizable to them. And he is answering now a question that they have. And it seems to me that the major question that they have propounded to him, isn't it better? Isn't it better? Wouldn't it be more profitable to us spiritually? If everyone were to uh, refrain from engaging in sexual relations. Not sexual immorality, but sexual relations. And now here's how I know that that's also part of the issue here. Because look at verse 5. The Apostle Paul there says, stop depriving. Now, if you're a parent and uh, you have used something similar to this, not stop depriving, but stop bouncing the ball in the living room, what does that imply? Obviously, somebody is doing something that they're not supposed to be doing. Stop it. That's what Paul is saying. And you can see where this is already leading. You you can see that it's sort of in spreading like sort of infection within the church. That now there are people who are married who are depriving themselves of these relations, thinking that somehow that lifts them to greater spirituality. So you have a contextual reason for why this is wrong, but I'm going to give you several others. And first of all, what I want us to do is think about that statement in view of the rest of Scripture. If you took that statement and you measured it against what the totality of Scripture has to say about marriage and marital relations, would it be consistent with the rest of the Word of God? No, it wouldn't be, because if you look across the Old Testament, uh, just a few texts, and I'm going to take us to one that I think is critical uh, as, a, as a point of reference, as a touchstone to help us understand this, but uh, Proverbs 18.22, for instance, says, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. 
Proverbs 19.14 says, A prudent wife is from the Lord. Proverbs 31 talks about the excellency of the wife, that her value is far above that of jewels. Proverbs 5 and 6, a number of exhortations there to young men to find satisfaction in their wife. Now, uh, you could think beyond that to the book of Song of Solomon, which when it's properly interpreted is not a metaphor. It's really a pretty frank discussion of marital love. You go beyond that, you can find a number of texts uh, throughout the Old Testament. Basically, uh, they will all commend marriage. They will speak of it uh, as if it is a divine blessing, as if it's the expectation, and if it is the norm. Now, ask yourself, why would that be? Well, the answer is Genesis 2. Please uh, take uh, your Bibles and turn there with me. I I know that we have looked at this passage uh, somewhat recently, but it really doesn't matter because I think it's very important that we have this before us as we think about this question. Could it be that the Apostle Paul would say something which would be so blatantly contradictory of the rest of the Scripture and its teaching about the issue of marriage and relations between a man and woman within marriage? And what I want you to notice here is you come into this particular passage is what the Apostle Paul uh, says, or rather not the Apostle Paul, he didn't write the book of Genesis. Uh, as Moses is recording here, uh, God's words in verse 2, 18, it says, The Lord God said, it's not good. Now just think about that so we can see the connections. 1 Corinthians 7, 1 says it's not good too. It says something's not good. There it says it's not good for a man to touch a woman. Now, notice uh, 2.18. It's not good for the man to be alone. God says, I'm going to remedy it. I'll make a a helper suitable. Now, without engaging too much in uh, a a deep exposition of the passage, we can just sort of fast forward from there and see, well, how did God remedy the situation? Well, we're told that uh, God performed the first first, uh, surgery in human history, uh, putting Adam to sleep. Took a rib out of his side, which is, by the way, an indication of the suitability and the complementarity of the woman to the man. And he fashioned, uh, the Word of God says, a woman. See, that was the remedy for the problem that God saw, that man was alone. And I want you to notice what God did. He created woman out of the side. The problem is loneliness, and God's remedy was to create a woman, not another man. God did not create a bowling buddy for Adam. He didn't. He didn't create another man so that they could form a fantasy football team. You think about all the culture around us says, hey, hey, the best form of fellowship is for the guys just to get together and go blow one off, right? Well, you know what? God didn't do that. He could have created a horde of men. He, he didn't. He created one woman. And the Word of God says that this woman was suitable. In other words, there was complement, they complemented each other. It's like they just fit together. And Adam uh, didn't need a lot of uh, instruction in sociology and psychology and anatomy and physiology to figure out that this person was just right. In fact, Adam was so happy that he started the card business and wrote a poem to talk about this great creation of God. Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman. He's Isha. She's Isha. He is, he, is, he is doing cartwheels here. You can catch that in the tone of verse 23. Just right. Now, what do we take from this verse here? This is where we're headed, and this is what we need to be thinking of in terms of the question in 1 Corinthians 7, chapter 1, is that here Moses now draws a deduction from the story. Here is the great application of this passage to the Israelite who was reading this for the first time. And this is the great application to the church. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother. They shall be joined to his wife. They shall become one flesh. In other words, Moses looks at this narrative and what does he find there but the institution of marriage. 
And by the way, the institution of marriage is a divine institution. This is not something that the smart people came up who are sitting around in the academy saying, hey, what would be the best way to organize our social existence? And they went around the room and one person said, I don't know, what should it be? And the other person said, I don't know, what do you think it should be? And then somebody over here that's really smart got a whole bunch of degrees and says, I don't know, what do you think it should be? And then finally somebody says, hey, I got it. Let's have one man and one woman get together and have a contract and they'll be married. Know how marriage started here, according to Genesis chapter 2, is God saw Adam alone, he created for him a woman, and he brought them together and he joined them. And they became husband and wife. Here's the payoff though, verse 25. The logical conclusion of the man and the woman coming together and being joined is verse 25. The man and his wife were naked and not ashamed. You fill in the blanks. You see, how could it be that this is God's way of ordering and structuring our social existence, and it was good, and now Paul could say later on in 1 Corinthians 7, I'm going to overturn this creation ordinance, and I'm going to argue now that it's not good. Well, we could say the New Testament does have a right to interpret the New. So let's go to the New Testament. Because we should open that. We should leave that possibility open. Maybe the apostles, uh, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, have, uh, have come to an infallible, inspired interpretation that we may have missed. So you turn to Matthew chapter 19. You turn to Matthew chapter 19. And see, right here, uh, you have Jesus uh, being questioned here by the, uh, the Pharisees. And we're told uh, that um, they came to him. They've been debating about divorce. And so they asked him in verse 3. They said, uh, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? By the way, uh, in a couple of weeks we'll hit the issue of, maybe even next week already, maybe that's what it is, we'll hit the issue of divorce. So I'm not going to touch on that. I'm just concerned about how Jesus uses the passage as he looks back at Genesis 2. They ask him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And here's what Jesus said. Have you not read? See, he goes back to the Bible. First of all, he refers to Genesis 1. God made them male and female. Now, verse 5, he says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. Well, what verse is that? Oh, that's Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Jesus appeals to that particular portion of Scripture to decide the argument about marriage and about divorce. He says, no, here's how it is. God called two to be together and be one. But what he has done here by quoting that verse is he's saying it's relevant to this situation. In other words, what Jesus is saying is that when God instituted marriage between Adam and Eve in the garden in Genesis 2.24, it wasn't a temporary administration. It wasn't a garden-only administration. It was the divine ordering of social existence. He goes on in verse 6 to reflect back on that verse. He says, they are no longer two but one flesh. See, he's thinking about this joining business of, uh, of the previous verse, which is really a quotation of Genesis 2.24. God joins the man and the wife. And he says, uh, God's joined together, no, let no man separate. Note what Jesus just did, did here, is he just basically argued that God is behind this mysterious and ineffable arrangement that occurs when a man and a woman come together in a marital relationship and consummate that sexual. God is behind this bond. God is the one that joins. He's doing by His divine ordering of our social existence and creation. Well, Jesus said that. Could Paul be speaking against that still? Well, something would have had to have drastically changed between the cross and resurrection and ascension. We should leave that possibility open. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 
something really significant would have had to have occurred if Paul would overturn that arrangement. We would expect to see something clear uh, that would say that God is doing things differently now and because of the times would rather people not get married but simply enjoy higher spirituality through celibacy. But look at what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 9.5. He says, Do we, that is himself as an, apostle, as an apostle and whoever his associates are, do we not have a right to take along a believing wife? Even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas. First of all, Paul looks at marriage and he sees it as a divine right. Second of all, he says the rest of the apostles are doing it. Even Peter. Catholicism has a very hard time with this verse. Uh, here's why. Because what Paul has just done here is said that celibacy is not the great spiritual higher plane. It's fine, it's good, we'll get back to that in a moment. But here's the principal issue, is that the Apostle Paul is quoting from the Corinthians who somehow got it into their mind that it would be better not at all to have uh, marriages and relations anymore. Because that just kind of muddies the water spiritually. Well, I think we've done enough to show you that this uh, idea of the Corinthians is just not biblical. And it's not correct, uh, either in terms of the context or in terms of the broader uh, view of marriage and relations, sexual relations throughout all of the Bible, to read this as a statement of Paul's. You could look up 1 Timothy 3, requirements for office. You could look up 1 Timothy 4.3, which talks about uh, denying marriage as uh, doctrines of demons. You could look at Hebrews 13.4, which says the marriage uh, is held in honor, the marriage bed is undefiled. You could go a lot of places still in the New Testament to show that this didn't, if, if, Paul, if this was Paul's statement, Paul is way, way out of line with the rest of the Word of God. Now I did that because it's important for us to know why we believe things that we do. And by the way, marriage is a very fundamental issue. And if Paul really did say, again, I repeat it, Paul really did say that it's better. If it's better, it's not good, in other words, to touch another woman, even with the context of marriage, that being your spouse, uh, then we would really have to reshape and rethink our views. But we did those, we, we studied Scripture. By the way, that's a very important principle for you this morning when you're reading the Bible is to make sure when you're interpreting the Scripture that you always interpret it through the context. And second of all, you always interpret it in view of the rest of Scripture. That is a Reformation, a Protestant, a biblical principle of Bible interpretation is that Scripture interprets Scripture and that we, under, that we understand text within context and in the broader context of the Word of God. And you see a lot of heresies and, 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 and sinful, unbiblical principles Practices come into the church and bind and compel people's consciences because people, even reputable Protestant preachers, grab hold of passages like this and ignore Protestant principles of biblical exegesis. Well, coming back to our passage, this is a quotation, and this represents something that is very dangerous. I hope you see the danger in this quotation. It's not good. The danger, first of all, is staking out a position that is contrary or not found in the Word of God and exalting it as if it was better than what God had said. It amounts to a setting aside of God's standards. Why would somebody do that? Well, in this case, it made them feel spiritually superior. You know, people of God, and I'll come back to this later, we better be very careful about how we uh, define our piety. Uh, we better be very careful about how we envision ourselves as pious and, and, and righteous. 
We better be very careful at defining what it means to be spiritual and to be progressing in spiritual maturity and what spiritual maturity looks like. We better not define that in a way that's not found in Scripture. Because as soon as you do that, you open a floodgate of danger to the church to ensnare and to bind and compel people's consciences and introduce false practices and false doctrine and false teaching and false use of salvation in the church. And so we come clear with this particular question. First of all, it's not a statement, it's a quotation. The second thing, and then it has to be dealt with, and because it's related, is then uh, what Paul says in verse 6. Uh, there, back to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he says, But this I say by way of concession and not of command. Now the only reason why I take that up is because you have to ask yourself the question. Was Paul just saying that uh, he allows people to get married. We'll talk about that in a minute. He's allowing people to get married by way of concession. Well, a number of people ask that same question. Is it, is it really just a concession? And not a command, it's a concession. Well, so the question that emerges is Paul looking back and saying what he's just said is a concession, or is he looking forward and saying what I'm about to say is a concession? Well, without getting into all the details of why I hold the latter, I'm going to argue, and I'm going to just say it. Paul is looking forward. When he says, but, uh, he says, but this I say by way of concession. Now what is he going to say by way of concession? Well, what he's going to say by way of concession is that celibacy is permissible, is divinely approved, and in some cases it's even good. Look, look at the passage. Uh, he says in verse 7, I, I wish that all men were even as I myself am. Uh, what is he, by the way? He's not saying, I wish they were all apostles and pastors. Uh, he's, he's referring to his marital status, which at this time was obviously single. He probably had been married earlier in his life. That, that's the speculation that, that many offer, and I think it's probably pretty sound. But at this point in his life, he's no longer married. He's single. He's celibate. Now look at this. He says in the rest of verse 7. He says each man has his own gift from God. Verse 8. He says I say this to the unmarried and to the widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I. And then in verse 9 he says but if they don't have self-control let them marry. Uh, just quickly, let's touch on this. Uh, what he is saying is that there are some people who God has gifted with the capacity to be celibate. He, he, he sets out the categories here in verse 8. He says, to the unmarried and to the widows. And that, that doesn't mean to the widowers and the widows. It means to people who are married and then the people who had been, whose spouse had passed on. He's pretty frank about it. He says there's some people who've been given this gift. And the people who've been given this gift, he says it's good for them to be where they are. And one of the things I want to say here right now is that if that is you in your life, single, divorced, widow, uh, it may be that the gift of celibacy has been given to you. And if it has been, it's good. Paul is not saying that it's God's second best for you. Paul uh, does something here that's very encouraging to people who are in that particular condition in life station. It's not God's judgment against you. It's not bad. There may be a lot of reasons why it would be good for somebody uh, to remain, like Paul says, as I am. may not find the right person. may not just work out that... Uh, the personalities and life circumstances and experiences mesh together in such a way that it could be a good marriage. Uh, it'd be utterly foolish to just jump into marriage with somebody just because you thought, well, hey, we've got to get married and uh, we're getting older now and uh, this, we should just probably, the biological talk, the clock is ticking, so let, let's just go ahead and do it and just throw caution to the wind about uh, the rest of the problems that may actually lead to that marriage being a disaster. You know, it might just be that it's good to be single. And so I suppose 
If you're in that condition, you may be asking, well, how would I know whether I have the gift? Because you could have the gift after you've already been married. Because clearly Paul has probably been married and he says he's this way now. He's clearly the widows who he is addressing, who he says it's good for them to remain as they are. Clearly they've been married and now they have the gift. How would you know you have the gift? Uh, This is probably not one they put on those spiritual inventory tests again. And this would probably be one of those that most people wouldn't want to have come up on their spiritual inventory checklist either. But um, how would you know? Well, it seems to me, based upon what Paul says in verse 9, it's pretty simple. Do you have self-control? Do you sense and do you have an experience of the ability to control yourself? And you don't really have strong urges to tug against that. Then it looks like what Paul would say is, it's good to be where you are. It's good. It wouldn't mean that marriage is a bad option. It just means that it's good for where you are. If you have the sense of and the ability to control, and there's nothing that's pulling and tugging and gnawing at you and saying, I've got to get married. Paul would say to you this morning, where you are in life is good. Well, that brings us to verse 2. I think it's kind of going a little bit longer than I thought it would. Uh, Verse 2 this morning. And we'll look at a few of the things here in this passage that we need to look at as we wind our way to a conclusion and to some applications this morning. Uh, Our second point this morning is that marriage is the remedy for immorality. Verse 2. Paul says, but because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife and each woman is to have her own husband. Uh, What Paul has done here in verse 2 is he's responded to this um, Gnostic, super-spiritual, higher-life Christianity quotation of the Corinthians who said "It's, it's not good to touch a woman. He says, wrong. He says, because of immoralities, each is to have their own wife. Immoralities, uh, most commentators think, is, is a contextual use of this word here because prostitution and sexual immorality was so prevalent in Corinth and the temptations were so strong and so overwhelming. He says, wrong. Because of immoralities, it's good for each to have. And notice how he spells out both man and woman here. This is very egalitarian. This is not chauvinism. This is not patriarchal at all. Believe me, compare it to the standard of the ancient world. Even among the pagans, this is extremely egalitarian. And Paul says, because of immoralities. And, and you look at that, and you almost think, well, that sounds pretty crass. Paul says you should basically get married, because if you don't, you're probably just going to fall into sexual immorality. It almost sounds like that's the basis that he's given to go ahead and get married. And uh, a lot of people have argued with that verse and they thought, wow, that's really crass. They can't believe that that Paul is saying, well, that's the only reason why you should get married. And uh, basically what I would say to to that particular way of looking at this verse is Paul is not saying this is the only reason. He's saying it's a reason. Second of all, he's attacking false spirituality which had elevated celibacy to this point of of godliness. And he's saying... Forget it. You'll never attain it. Very few will only. He says, because of immorality, because of the overwhelming temptation, because of the urges. He says, because of that, you ought to be married. But he also does something else with this. And I think he highlights the fundamental goodness and godliness of married couples coming together. And enjoying God's gift in sexual relations. After all, isn't that the very first observation that Moses made when he looked at God instituting marriage? Basically what he has just done is he's he's just cut down to size this this idea that the path to super spirituality is, is this continence and celibacy. It says, because of immoralities, 
each man and each woman is to have their own husband or their own wife. And as soon as he does that, he doesn't leave yet the topic of sexual relations. I told you this is not exactly G-rated this morning, but it's in the passage and we have to talk about it. In verses 3 through 5, he talks about the duties of husbands and wives. In verse 3, he says that the husband is to fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise also the wife to her husband. It's fascinating here that the Apostle Paul uses the categories of debt repayment to talk about the obligations that husbands and wives have to each other when they are married when it pertains to sex. He says they have an obligation. It's like, it's like paying back a credit card. It's like going down to Best Buy and you all of a sudden see it. That big 48-inch widescreen TV with high-definition sound or rather high-definition graphics and images and surround sound stereo and, and everything uh, that you'd always wanted a TV that you're very sure would uh, help you watch uh, football and the fights 100% better. And, and just uh, uh, a rush of emotion overcomes you and, and there's this great impulse to buy it and you find out it's, it's no, no payments, uh, no, zero interest, no payments for two years, so whatever the deal is. And all of a sudden you're just gripped. You have to buy it. Well, you also have to make the payments after you take it home. It doesn't matter if you get laid off or you have other unexpected bills come up. You buy that TV on credit, you pay the bills. Now, that's exactly the language Paul uses here in verse 3. He said, both the husband and the wife have duties and they are obligated to pay them back. The husband is obligated. The wife is obligated. Paul would not agree that perpetual headache would relieve the responsibility. Uh, It's amazing how frankly he speaks about this obligation. It's almost shocking to our ears, but it's in the Bible. It's the inspired Word of God. And he says, if you're going to get married, there's duties. Both for husbands and for wives. And then notice, he, he doesn't soften, soften the approach at all in verses 4 or 5. Look at verse 4. He says, the wife does not have authority over her own body. And the husband does. And about the time all the men in the congregation uh, heard that and they stood up and they started high-fiving, they heard the rest of the sermon which said, likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body. The wife does. You cannot just imagine how utterly remarkable that statement is. In Judaism, I came across this this past week in doing some research, in Judaism, the man alone determined these matters. And if the woman didn't like it, she would either be stuck with it, or she could be divorced. But she had zero say in the matter. In in the Greco-Roman world, it wouldn't have been any different at all. There would have been zero thought given to what the wife wanted. And yet here, again, a very egalitarian, non-patriarchal kind of a statement. Paul says, when it comes down to this matter of the marriage bed, the wife doesn't own her body, and the husband doesn't own his. They must be mutual. Very blunt, very realistic. Then you hit verse 5. And he says, stop depriving. And he gives one concession here. He says, except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then notice that he says, come back together again. So Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. 
In other words, Paul says there's only one exception where husbands and wives can, can, for a time, not fulfill the obligations of marriage. Just for a time. That's it. Just for a time. And the only instance in which that is allowable, he says, is for prayer. It's a, it's a, it's a really humorous picture in a sense. But he says... <laughs> I mean, how does that conversation go? Look, not tonight, honey. I've, I've got a long prayer list tonight. I just, um, you, you, you just think about this. It's really kind of a, it's interesting. But I, I mean, everybody who's married understands exactly what he's saying. He says there's only an exception here, and it's for prayer. And then immediately you come back together. And why does he say that? He says, because Satan will tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now that's just, uh, again, very frank, very realistic assessment of the frailty and the weakness of, uh, of fallen sinners. He said, if you, if you make it more than a five-minute prayer break, guess what? Satan is watching your marriage bed, and he knows what's going on, and he knows when it hasn't been tended to that you're in trouble. And he says something else. Guess what? Even worse than Satan, uh, not worse, but, uh, but it doesn't help anything. Satan is watching and he knows and he's very good at, at very surgically attacking the weakness spiritually. And then he says, guess what? At insult to injury, you don't have any self-control. Now, that is a stunning statement to say. He's talking to Christians. He's talking to people who are regenerate, who have the Holy Spirit, who are engaging in prayer, who go to worship, who get the sacraments, who are in Christ. And he says to them, you don't have any self-control. So don't trust yourself. You know what? I looked across the New Testament when I came across that statement because I was so stunned by it. And guess what? I didn't find Paul saying that about anything else. Apparently, this is a big struggle for people. So I've been told. And he says, Husbands and wives, you have obligations. And you better take them seriously. And if you don't, you might just wake up one morning where the marriage is ruined. Because Satan knows exactly how to take that marriage apart. You know what? He knows how to uh, send somebody by you at work who makes a comment or two to you that makes you feel like you're 18 again. He knows how to bring a sensitive and open ear to you who's willing to listen to you because your husband's so impossible. He knows how to do those things. Oh, and it's, it's very subtle. But he knows how to destroy a marriage pretty quickly. And we all better be warned about that if you're married this morning. You all better be warned this morning about how perceptive, how surgical, and how vigilant is his watch in terms of wanting to take down your marriage if you're a Christian and so Paul I believe as a good pastor as someone who knows what it is to live in the flesh and in a fallen world with all of its difficulties gives very concrete shocking pastoral advice to the church stop depriving fulfill your duties you don't have authority over your body, kind of stuff. Be married because of sexual immorality. You don't have any control. It's pretty graphic, but honest language. As we think about this by way of application this morning, what do we take from it? First of all, uh, I think we take, and it's obvious take, but uh, God has provided a tremendous gift and remedy for us in marriage. If you are married, uh, you ought to be thankful this morning that God has given you that benefit, that blessing, and that gift. And you ought to do everything within your power to make sure you take care of it. 
If you're single this morning, what God would have for you is this word. It's good. It's good. If the impulses are not savaging and destroying your life and you feel by the grace of God you have the ability to endure that state without sinning, it means God is blessing you and He's given you a gift. And you should be grateful for a gift. He says it's a gift. If you have the ability to maintain self-control and to not burn with passion and to be content in the lot that you're given in life, Paul says that is a gift. And he says it's a good one. If that's you this morning, God is speaking to you, confirming you in your status. And he's saying you don't have to go look far and wide. You don't have to run and make a bunch of plans about trying to find a spouse. You don't have to be all over the internet and dating sites and all this. If you're okay with this, this is good. It's not a judgment of God. It's not second best. It's good. And it's good that you hear that this morning. But he says if you can't control uh, yourself, uh, then you need to make preparations to get yourself ready to be a good husband or a good wife. If you can't control it, and you know whether you can or you can't, I, I think that's obvious. Everybody knows this. So you don't need to put a bunch of qualifications and lists and see the guide over here and there's four different things that you should do to evaluate. Now you know. And if you don't, what the Apostle Paul would say to you, if you don't have this gift, he would say to you, make plans. Make yourself be prepared to be a good spouse to another man or to another woman. The last thing that this text would have uh, by way of admonition uh, to us this morning is that there's no paths to spiritual maturity. There's no higher Christian life. There's no exalted plane of spirituality that's not found in the Word and that's not found in Jesus Christ. How is Christ in this passage this morning? Christ is latent in this passage. What the Apostle Paul is saying is that Christ and His Word, His provisions and His grace is sufficient. You don't have to add to Jesus Christ by way of new formulas, new ceremonies, new rituals, new practices, even celibacy. You don't have to go above and beyond the Word to find ways to make yourself more spiritual because every single spiritual blessing that you possibly could need to make yourself grow in maturity and grow in grace is in Christ. Paul didn't have to say it explicitly. He assumes that you will get it as you read the passage. Christ is in the passage because He is the one who is the sufficiency. And so I would argue then that finally this morning the admonition to all of us is to flee from our own man-made understandings and laws and opinions and commandments of what spirituality is and find true spirituality and true maturity and true grace in the only place you can find it. And that's in Jesus Christ by grace and by faith. Let's pray.